Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Angela Summers and Sanjay Lahoti. Uh, we're at Saffron Fields in Yamhill. It's uh, August 13th, 2020. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Uh, first question for both of you is why wine? Well, why wine? It's just something that gives us a lot of pleasure. It's, uh, you know, it's just not just the, the drink part, but just uh, the lifestyle part. You know, we, the people in wine are usually nice in, in our experience, you know, most of them anyway. And uh, we've, uh, we've, you know, over over the years, uh, we've met some great people around here in Oregon and some of our best friends now are from the wine industry. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's why wine. Well, I guess for me, it was uh, years ago uh, when we first got married, we took quite a few trips um, vacations out to Napa and Sonoma and we just um, loved the the way the land looked and the foodie culture and uh, of course wine and um, developed a, a love of different wines and then uh, he started taking courses in wines and taking me to wine tastings and so when we talked about well where would we ultimately like to end up at retirement. You know, where would we like to, where would our forever home be? Everybody's always on TV talking about they want their forever home. Well, where really is your forever home going to be? And uh, I'm from Mississippi and he's from India. And it's like, well, we live in Texas now for 30 years. Where should we live? It's like, I want to live here in Oregon in the land of Pinot Noir. So that's why we're here. We love wine. So tell, me, tell me a little bit about your lives before wine and, and how you got to, how you met, how you got together, and how you got to Texas. Well, we, uh, we're both chemical engineers. Uh, we met at, uh, at graduate school, in graduate school, uh, the University of Alabama. We're all tied. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so that was uh, after we both, uh, Angela was getting her PhD, I was getting uh, a master's uh, in chemical engineering and uh, so the Houston was one of the few places where we could both work get jobs and even change jobs without having to move you know <laughs> so it was a logical de destination and uh, so we moved there uh, after uh, in after fact uh, Angela still hadn't graduated but when we moved there uh, I, I had and uh, that's how we ended up in Houston. And uh, the, the original premise that we could change jobs and, uh, and without having to move continued. Continued. We still, <laughs> you know, we still have the same house we bought shortly after moving to Houston. Yeah, yeah so um, we're both engineers. He specializes in uh, polysilicon production. And um, my company um, specializes in the implementation of instrumented safeguards in the chemical industry. 
So my company designs the systems that detect that they're having an upset condition and shuts them down before any releases happen. So we like to say that we come to work every day to save lives. So makes me feel good. But that's our other life other than the wine. <laughs> and I think these days that's much more common that uh, it's, it used to be that, okay, you had this job and that's all you did and then you went and did this other job. And I, I think it's much more common now that, you know, uh, people kind of have to be polymaths, you know. You often have a couple of gigs going on at the same time. <laughs> one gig supporting another one, maybe helping you get skills so that you can do something even greater later on. But. You know, so I, I think that there's a lot of um, interplay, especially for Sanjeev, because he is a chemical engineer. So when he talks to the winemaker, um, the winemaker doesn't baby talk him. You know, they, they talk the chemistry. <laughs> they talk what's actually going on in the, in, the, uh, in the wine to the level that you can take something that's such an art and uh, define it by science. So you talked about kind of, kind of enjoying the food, wine, travel part of things and looking for a forever home. So why, why Oregon? How did Oregon come about instead of other, other wine regions? So we are sort of, you know, we were sort of wine newbies a little bit. That uh, you know, I grew up in India, which doesn't really have a wine culture. Angela, you know, was uh, talking about Baptist colleges. She grew up in the Baptist in Mississippi. In Mississippi, again. no alcohol in my house. No alcohol. <laughs> and then in my house uh, as well. You know, strict vegetarians. Uh, my parents and uh, and so when we we took a vacation to Napa. Uh, shortly after getting married and uh, uh, and I had a first glass of good wine over there you know I, I mean we actually went there for the uh, the spas in Calistoga and, uh, and then we stayed at a bed and breakfast and the woman who owned it recommended you know a few places to visit and that was when we had our first glass of good wine. It was like, whoa. And uh, it was this <laughs> epiphany kind of thing. And, uh, and then we started going there really frequently. I mean, two, sometimes three times a year. Uh, I had to sometimes make business trips out there as well. So it was, uh, combined them. And, uh, and then, and so it was a cab heavy, uh, you know, uh, hobby at that time or uh, passion. And, uh, and then we slowly shifted to Pinot Noir, you know, people introduced us to that, and the Burgundies and the Oregon Pinots, and, uh, which were in the 90s not that commonly available in, in Texas, actually. So, uh, yeah. and then I had, I used to come here for business as well, uh, some customers in this area, and uh, in the Portland area. And so we, when we, seriously started, we were visiting and we seriously started about, you know, wanting to live in wine country, uh, Oregon was, you know, sort of top of the list. And uh, our, you know, those very modest uh, ambitions at that time is to just have a home in wine country. Mm -hmm. Where just we could uh, just, yeah, we could visit other wineries, you know, not <laughs> have our own. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, um, kind of like quicksand. You put your feet in it, and next thing you know. And, uh, we, so we contacted we a realtor, and it was Lisa Neal of Coup de Terre. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and uh, she, uh, this was the first property she showed us. It was a you know, grassy farm and, uh, uh, and then she showed us a few other things and uh, eventually, uh, like uh, two or three months later, this was, I think we came here in, like, uh, we came here in November, Thanksgiving week actually, and, uh, and then uh, in, like in January, February, we, uh, we bought the property, you know, and, uh, and that was early 2004. And, uh, and then again, sort of a slippery slope uh, kind of deal is that you, we uh, said, okay, we, we'll have this home and we, we should plant a small vineyard. Now we have this land, you know, it was a lot bigger than uh, we had originally planned. And so we planted 10 acres of uh, pomade, uh, you know, uh, Pinot Noir, and uh, and, and uh, that was the beginning. And uh, we, uh, when during the, for the first harvest, uh, our winemaker Tony Reinders uh, called us. I mean, he called me right out of the blue and said he, he had seen our site and he really liked it and uh, he wanted uh, to buy our entire first harvest and uh, so uh, that that worked out well you know uh, we, we liked his style of wines and uh, we were pretty happy that he was a customer and then the next year we were barrel tasting with him and uh, and then there was this one barrel that we really liked and he said yes it's 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 yours it's from saffron fields and uh, so at that point we, we talked and they said okay you know maybe we should start our own label and uh, made 50 cases in 2010 and it increased uh, you know uh, and then there came a point where we had to decide we're like well, we're going to get 200 cases what are how are we going what are we going to do with these yeah. <laughs> so then we built a tasting room <laughs> yeah so it was that either shut it down it's really expensive to make small quantities of wine <laughs> you know, close, uh, shut it down or go commercial. Go commercial. Then, so uh, we opened so the tasting room. That's how we um, got in the wine business. <laughs> yeah, I used to sell wine out of the back of my car in Houston. You know, the people call me and then when we drive up there and like meet them in a, a Walgreens a parking lot. lot. Yeah. I'm like, we look like we're doing down. a drug deal. <laughs> I swear, it's a case of wine. Look, it's a case of wine. <laughs> <laughs> the things you have to do to get started. That's what I said about that. You got sometimes you got to gig those jobs in order to get in there. But the uh, the 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 trip that we made to Oregon. He had been traveling out here quite a bit on business, and he kept telling me that you know Oregon was beautiful. But I'd actually never been to Oregon, and we came. Uh, as he said, Thanksgiving weekend, and apparently it had been raining for two straight weeks, um, really nasty weather, and the day we show up, it's, the sky is practically like this. And Lisa took us up to the top of the hill where our home is now, and I got out of the car, and I looked across at the coastal range over there, and I looked at him, and it's like, okay. <laughs> and uh, as he said, she showed us other properties the rest of that trip, and it rained on every single one of those <laughs> bad. And then we came back here one more time, 
and there was it had stopped raining. I was like, okay, this is a message. Mm -hmm. This is supposed to be it. And um, we we bought. It was a very quick decision after that. I had a lot of friends that teased me about it. They said they had seen the two of us or heard the two of us talk about what salt and pepper grinders to buy for a year. But we went one weekend and, and bought property in another state. <laughs> like, well, you know, sometimes you have to take that leap of faith. You know, sometimes you just have to take that plunge. And uh, it was just beautiful. But it was just grass seed, uh, grass seed farm when we bought it. And, uh, yeah, so it's... Uh we, you know, so it's been here, and now it's you know year um, 16, I guess. Uh, so it, you know, it's been here a long time now, and uh, it's um, really uh, sort of embraced this area and uh, the whole uh, ethos of the Oregon wine community. And so that was sort of the great thing about for us oh, was yeah. uh, that uh, you know we were newbies, you know, sort of uh, you know we didn't have any farming or wine background and then it's and over the years you know we uh, met uh, you know people like Tony Reinders who makes our wine and uh, others uh, over here Jay McDonald and uh, Chris Berg up uh, and Roots and and then these people sort of you know guided us through what to plant and uh, you know the whole uh, thing the really even the Willikensee the La Cruz uh, at that time you know the their staff was really helpful, you know, uh, sort of letting uh, when we moved here, and it's, so it's it's all of that that has yeah. uh, been so so rewarding almost. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a very supportive environment out here, and um, I don't know if we would have found that in other wine regions, but I know that it's very characteristic of here, and and uh, people aren't um, competitive. Um, and they're not negative and they're not positive. It's just sort of what it is, you know. So nobody was afraid to share the realities of, of what it really is um, to, to be successful in, in wine, um, the amount of work and endless work, you know, that goes into it, all the th variables you can't control, like the weather. Uh, and um, heat pressure and bird pressure, these things um, can't be predicted. But at the same time, they're not something that are a burden either. It's just, it is. <laughs> and uh, it, that's always been very nice. It doesn't matter, you know, whether it's, you know, Ken Wright or Tony Reinders or Jay McDonald, um, everyone uh, will answer a question very honestly. And kindly. Yeah, we were uh, uh, when we first. Uh, I think it was like a month or two after we had moved here, and we were standing up uh, again near where our houses, and our uh, neighbor came uh, um, walking out. Uh, it was uh, Mike and Patty Green, who used to own Dewey Vineyards. They sold it last year, I guess, or, or the year before. Uh, but anyway, so they. Um, uh, so Mike said, you know, uh, and he asked us, you know, what we did, and we 
talked a little bit and then he said let me give you some good advice <laughs> don't give up your day job don't give up your day jobs <laughs> you're both chemical engineers don't give up your day, day jobs <laughs> don't, don't do that until it's paid for those little word words of words yeah, of wisdom we always say when we run into him you know he was the one who gave us the best business yes <laughs> tell everybody that mike green is definitely a businessman because he gave us the absolute best advice don't give up your day job until you paid it off <laughs> and it'll take a lot longer than you think <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, that's amazing <laughs> uh, another sort of fun thing about that was right after we so we bought this place and i think in 2005 we went to ipnc for the first time oh it was wonderful oh linfield college Gosh, being from Texas, when it gets to be June, July, and August, everything, it gets so hot in Houston that everything just kind of wilts. And in August, I just don't even look at my garden. It's too hot, it's, everybody's unhappy about it. And to go to that campus, and see the flowers and the landscaping, it was just like, I was taking photos everywhere. Because <laughs> I'm like, nobody's gonna believe me how beautiful this campus yeah, looks our, uh, in first, July, end of uh, July. Yeah. That was uh, <laughs> so our first meeting with Tony Reinder. So we got picked to go to uh, uh, Domain Serene. Uh, For our bus tour. Bus tour. And, Off uh, campus so tour, Tony, I guess. Uh, uh, was sitting next to me and you know making small talk uh, so he's like uh, why are you here i mean so i said we just bought this property in yamhill and he's like do you have any farming background mm. no no uh do you have any wine background uh, like no no and then he asked one more question and then uh, it was uh he said, then he just looked at me and he said well, well good luck with well that. good luck with that <laughs> good luck with that <laughs> <laughs> and then he got up and uh, did his presentation. And so on, on the last day, on Sunday, we were walking back and there was a... A badge, a, a face ba down. Face down, and we picked it up and it was Tony's badge. And I told him, <laughs> I said, Tony's going to make our wine one day. And he's like, you're crazy, he works at Domain Serene. I'm like, there is no reason why I would have found this badge on the ground if it's not a message. He's going to make wine for us one day. We still have the badge. And I still have the badge. And, uh, and then we didn't see him till, uh, you know, my, my phone rings in uh, 2009 and it was Tony. It's yeah, four years later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> saying he wants to buy all of our first crop. And then he ends up making our wine. So I was right. <laughs> so it was a message. Yeah. So we're we now really good friends with him. And, uh, uh, yeah, uh, and, uh, he's, uh, you know, so we, we're really happy with what, what he does with the wines. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so you mentioned that you, you the, the, it was the slippery slope. Obviously, you, yes. you plant a vineyard first. So tell me about that initial experience of, of choosing of all, all the all the all the all the things that have to go into planting a vineyard, choosing your clones and choosing your space and actually planting it, laying it out. Was it what you expected? Was it different? Uh, what well, was the experience like? It was interesting because it's like everything for us here in Oregon has almost been a, a matter of serendipity. It was like things happen when they were supposed to happen. You know, so when Sanjeev called, um, looked for a real estate agent, he found Lisa Neal. And then um, Lisa had um, a relationship with Kevin Chambers. 
uh, and he did some of the initial consultation on the property, which ultimately led us to Results Partners um, actually doing our vineyard management uh, even today. And uh, they, uh, I mean, so we, what we did was, one of the things we were sort of lucky or uh, was uh, easier for us was that, you know, stuff was planted around here. So we had, uh, you know, Willikenzie had uh, plantings and, uh, and then... Uh, Mike and Patty Green Mike would do Patty. there. So we, uh, we were able to taste, and Willikenzie used to do, like, single clone uh, bottlings. So at initially, you know, and that, the flavor at that time was to plant uh, Dijon clones. Mm -hmm. And then we talked to a few more people and people are like, no, maybe you should try pomade over here. It needs a warm site and your site is a warm site. Warm site. And uh, so we, uh, so the first 10 acres uh, was, was pomade. Results partners, I mean, a lot of the, uh, like the layout discussions and stuff was sort of similar to Villa Kenzie. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, currently, you know, Daniel Fay um, was the vineyard manager at that time at Willa Kenzie, and now you know, he's president of Results Partners, and uh, and he actually uh, he only manages like a couple of vineyards, and personally, he, personally, and uh, he's maintained his. Uh, Thing for us because I guess old times. Yeah, <laughs> like to come and look at. Well, it's so funny. It doesn't feel like old times. It's 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 been that many years, but it doesn't feel like it at all. So uh, yeah, so that's that's what started the pomade, and then we did. Uh, uh, so we did the first planting in 2007, then a series in like 2009, 2012, and that's when the vineyard pretty much got planted, planted out. out 35 acres now. You mentioned that you you started with sort of cabs and and, and fell into and fell into Pinot or found Pinot. Tell me about what it was about Pinot Noir that made you want to grow it and plant it, make it down down the line. Why, why Pinot Noir? What, what's exciting about it? Well, the you know the cabs, you know, with uh, you know it was in like the earlier cabs, you know, in the late 80s and 90s. You know, they were fairly drinkable, like a couple or two, three years old, they were fine, you know, and uh, you could drink those uh, easily. And then this sort of this thing came on that they got bigger and bigger, really tannic uh, and uh, a lot chewy. of chewy. Yeah, I mean, people <laughs> would, uh, I mean, we'd, uh, you'd go to dinner with people and we'd, they'd, you know, people who really know wine, really know cabs in Napa cabs. And they would be like, huh, in, you know, 10, ten years, years, this would be great. It's going to be awesome. It's like, why are we drinking it now? <laughs> I want to drink something that tastes good yeah, now. Yeah, I mean, like eating the inside of your mouth. It could taste better later, but it should taste good now. <laughs> and uh, Pinot Noirs, the well-made Pinot Noirs were, you know, they were uh, fairly delicate uh, right up front. And they uh, uh, got... Uh, uh, you know, even better with age. You know, different things came out with age. So uh, that was what uh, uh, sort of drew right. us there. So you start off with something that is beautiful, and then over time it just becomes increasingly more elegant. Yeah. You know, so it doesn't matter what year you pull it out. 
it's going to taste great. Yeah. So that that's I think that was the the driver uh, because in the like the mid 90s, you know, 94, 95, you know, the the cabs that were it just the and that's the trend. I mean, that, uh, even to this day, that you know, the bigger the wine, the better it is kind of thing, and it was. Uh, Kind of, it's like yeah. I'm not really looking for a <laughs> bottle of wine to have with a cigar, yeah. you know. <laughs> which is what the, the driver was, you know, was big steak, uh, um, bold wine. Bold wine and, 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 yeah. yeah. So that's uh, that was what first drove us to the Pinots. And, and, and you know, and while I I love wine, and I try to remember to always pronounce all the different names correctly. <laughs> Um, I am not a um, wine knowledge nerd, and one of the beauties of Pinot is I don't have to worry about what I'm going to have for dinner, because the Pinot will go with anything. It goes with ice cream. It goes with popcorn. <laughs> it goes with everything. So uh, that's one of the things that I really love about it. So our, our, our wine personal wine cellar at home went from in the 90s being full of cabs to now being full of pinots. Pinots of friends. That's the other great thing about being in the wine industry is that you, you share wine with each other a lot. Uh, so we just have some really beautiful wines from good friends of ours. Another thing about Oregon that uh, you know was uh, sort of the transition when we first went to Napa uh, in '91, uh, oh, and yeah. it was a much you know it was a much kinder, gentler time at Napa, you know, and uh, and then uh, when we saw the change in like in the ten-year period, it uh, got really crowded, and uh, you know, and where the tasting rooms were kind of almost rude, uh, you know, unless you were buying a lot of wine and. Uh, it just, and then Oregon is the way it originally was, you know, even today, you know, and uh, so I think that uh, that's a sort of really uh, positive for Oregon. And that, that is, a, I think, a, an important context is that when you think, okay, well, you were going to Napa, why did you pick Oregon? Because I think if you compared Napa now to Oregon now, you're going to be, those are not anywhere near the thing. But on our trip, we went to taste at Rombauer and they were pouring out of a manufactured home. In those days, yeah, the first and, uh, They were pouring out of a manufactured home, uh, you know, so that's when we classic, were going. Uh, the two barrels in a plank. And plank are uh, uh, We uh, A very large high production winery was pouring on well, a couple of upsides. Well, uh, But then, they, but they, that are now, but yeah, weren't then. Right. We're pouring, you know, there. And so, you know, the, the lifestyle that we fell in love with there is the lifestyle that we have now in Oregon. And the great thing is, is that even though it's been 16 years, uh, that lifestyle really hasn't changed. And I, I think that has to do with uniquely Oregon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you, uh, uh, we have a vineyard, you, you named it Saffron Fields from the start. Tell me about the kind of significance behind that name. So the first time we, I mean, that time we went to Napa, so it was post-harvest um, harvest and it had the sort of the fall colors, you know, orange, red, you know, yellow. Uh, and uh, so that, you know, we had mentioned that, you know, those are sort of the colors of saffron. And then it came time to uh, name our place. So that 
that conversation was there and uh, and then uh, coming from India uh, it has a lot of you know saffron is a there's a lot of connections to that it's one of the colors of the Indian flag uh, uh, and it's sort of the color of purity uh, where like the like all the, the, moms, rug, the all the wear saffron colored robes and that's supposed to be the color of purity purity and then uh, we uh, so that got the first word you know saffron and uh, then he's a huge John Lennon, John Lennon fan. <laughs> so strawberry fields. And saffron fields. And that decision was made like as quickly <laughs> as the purchase of the property. Yeah. I mean, people are like, did you struggle with the name? And I'm like, no, the name was easy. Designing the label, that was hard. <laughs> and then you know, we found out uh, after the fact, you know, saffron grows really well over here. It, uh, it just is... Uh, the reason it's not a commercial crop is because of the labor uh, it, you know, costs over here. And uh, so uh, we, we grow uh, saffron over here. Yeah, some uh, saffron crocus. Uh, just for our own, uh, it produces enough for our own requirements. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I'm like, we will not be planting that commercially, no. <laughs> yeah, Go people, with the pair, a with couple of people who've tried uh, to do it commercially. And uh, I mean, they did it, you know, few years and then it just, yeah. uh, I think it just, you know, it's just too labor intensive. It's too to, labor intensive. You're getting these little stamens out of a flower. It's a bit labor intensive. But it does produce really, you know, nice really good saffron, quality, yeah. nice saffron that we do. It's amazing. So tell me about the, you mentioned the, 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 the barrel of wine you tasted from Tony uh, that was your, your mm -hmm. grapes kind of sending you down that next path. Mm -hmm. What, what resonated with you about that wine? Why was it special to you? What, how did you, how would you describe sort of your, the early flavor, the early terroir? I would, I would, I would say that I'm still surprised by the, how almost velvety the mouthfeel is from our wine and the, the, the depth of the, the berry flavors. And, and uh, it's sort of a little spice. And so the, the vineyard is, uh, and we were, uh, fortunate in that, that uh, you know, the vineyard has a fairly strong personality. It has these uh, sort of pretty well-defined uh, uh, flavors that, that it produces, uh, like the, especially on the finish, uh, it has the citrus notes on there that are, uh, I think, uh, pretty strong to our vineyard. And, uh, and we actually, <laughs> after that, you know, uh, I, I forced uh, Tony to give me, uh, you know, bottle some of that wine for me. Uh, so we, we still have some of that left and uh, last year, it's very precious, of course. And uh, so we opened a bottle last year with him. And, uh, you know, it's... A, he was all smiling. Yeah, it's a beautiful wine, you know, 10 years now, you know, down the road. Uh, so uh, it's, uh, I think that's, that's what, uh, you know, just, and especially at that time, uh, 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 just comparing, he had like three or four vineyards uh, that he had in barrel uh, where he had purchased fruit from and so we were, you know, just tasting through them and uh, this one sort of just was uh, what we what we liked. I mean, it was uh, it was almost hard to say now that uh, what was specific in there, it was just, uh, this was... Well, I think what was so shocking to me is that when Tony bought the grapes, he said, now, don't you expect anything out of these. These grape vines are only three years old. I'm going to use them as a blending grape. Don't ask me where I put them. Don't ask me anything about them. 
I'm buying it. And so then he's taking us through these barrels, and the first one we all like. The second one, none of us liked. And then he poured ours. And um, he didn't tell us what it was, and it was like, well, this was the best thing we've had all day. And he was like, yeah, I know, it's yours, it's yours. And, you know, so it was, you know, for me, it's like, again, I, I love wine, and I know what I like and how it tastes. Can I sit there and do all of those words that Tony comes up with to describe all the flavors? No, 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 I can't do it at all. Um, but that experience of having him say, this is not going to be special, you know, um, don't, don't cry when your baby's not special, right? <laughs> I'm not going to tell you she's going to be ugly, but, you know, it's only a three-year vine. Um, and then to have it be um, that wonderful that um, the next year uh, we sold grapes to um, Chris Berg, and to um, Jay McDonald, and they both made senior vineyard designates wow. with four-year-old vines. Uh, so we weren't the only ones that thought it looked good. It just wasn't because it was our baby. <laughs> you know, it really was good. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then we've continued with them. You know, we've got pretty uh, Chris, uh, Jay, uh, Tony himself. Um, makes uh, a Saffron Fields designate under his Kendra label. And, uh, and, a, and so they, uh, we've got these long relationships with these people. Mm -hmm. and, uh, good friends. Good friends, mm -hmm. yeah. Good friends, yeah. You had some interesting stories about, about selling your own wine starting off. That's uh, humble beginnings of selling wine. <laughs> uh, tell me about that. The, the, the decision to go commercial and to start making and selling wine, was that, again, was that something, how, how did it go compared to how you expected it to go? Well, it is, uh, so, you know, I mean. It's hard. It, 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 I mean, that's the hardest <laughs> thing in the wine business is selling the wine. You know, making it is, is significantly easier <laughs> because you control a lot of the things that, uh, to make the wine, right? And selling it, you don't. Uh, uh, and uh, so uh, we, you know, just talking to people and just, you know, seeing what the, the situation was, it was that, uh, you know, at the, the size that we wanted to be, most of it had to be direct. Mm -hmm. And that was going to be our only way, you know, to be somewhat commercially successful. And, uh, and that's how, uh, uh, so that's the reason we built the tasting room was uh, to, uh, that we could drive the- uh, Retail sales. The retail sales, the direct to consumer mm -hmm. sales and, uh, and uh, yeah, it was, but I, uh, I would say the hard, the the uh, the hardest part has been being a um, still a very small winery in terms of production and maintaining a good re working relationship with a distributor anywhere outside of the Northwest. Uh, I mean, it's just uh, it's, it's just it's, tough. It's, 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 it's tough, and uh, I think, and that's true for 
us for everybody. I mean, unless of course you, you know, you're a much larger operation where you have regional salespeople and stuff, which is uh, different. That's uh, a com that's the that's mm -hmm. a that's a step. That's a slope we're not going down. <laughs> that's just a sheer cliff. <laughs> so we so, uh, we're start, uh, staying small. So today we uh, consume half of our. I mean, most uh, other than one wine uh, that we uh, have purchased grapes from in. Uh, everything is a state, and we consume about half of our fruit uh, for our own uh, requirements. Uh, half uh, we sell, and uh, yeah, it's uh, the you know, the sales part has been you know it, it's fun, uh, but it is uh, you know, <laughs> it's a lot of hard work. A lot of hard work. <laughs> so I, I you know I do a lot of the all of the outside sales, uh, and uh, so it uh, yeah it's. Uh, travel and uh, we've, we export it to a few places that I had contacts in, you know, Hong Kong, Singapore, and so that gives me an opportunity to go out there and, uh, and, and yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's fun. But sometimes he'll, when he first got started, I don't think it bothers him at all now, but when he first started doing some of the tabletops, he said, I counted, I did I said the same thing 82 times today. <laughs> you know, would you like to try the Pinot Noir? <laughs> it is that there's a mix of customers. You, know, you have people oh, yeah. who, I mean, and then you almost have, you know, it. it yeah, and you can't tell. Bit, uh, you can't be. Uh, can't take it personally. You know? can't take anything personally. You, because, you've got uh, the there people. There are people who will come up to you, especially at these. Uh, you know, sort of the industry tastings that we do, like the Pinot in the city and stuff, uh, where there'll be people like, hey, you know, which is your strongest wine? It's like Especially my strongest? <laughs> my strongest wine? What is, what is that? Uh, so you just learned to say this one. <laughs> you know, you don't you don't try to figure out what they mean by strongest. So when somebody says some whatever the crazy question is, you go, oh, this this one. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, uh, 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 it's been a crazy journey, but uh, yeah, I mean... Uh, Are people who will come to a Pinot Noir in the city and complain that there's not more whites to taste? <laughs> you know? Whites or cabs? You, you know, know while you're on cabs, you're at Pinot in the city. Why would you be here looking for a cab? But you just go, well, this, this is close to a cab. <laughs> <laughs> this is a red wine. This is a red wine. <laughs> it's still red. Yeah, we. Uh, ah. So I do a lot of business. Uh, used to anyway uh, in in China. Sure. So uh, uh, you know, and China uh, in the in the two thousands, you know, really sort of discovered wine, and it became that uh, you know the, the sophisticated thing to drink. I mean, they used to drink this uh, really hard uh, liquor uh, that was you know. Like, 50% alcohol, 100 proof, and uh, really badly distilled. Uh, you know, I mean, it was just not uh, smooth. It was, yeah, it was a horrible thing. I mean, you drink it and you could smell it in your skin the next day. <laughs> but uh, so we, uh, we, you know, and, and so China uh, at that, that time, you know, the thing was that the more expensive the wine, the better the wine. And that's that's all the criteria was. And so these guys, uh, we had uh, people, you know, drinking these trophy wines, you know, absolute uh, top-notch, like um, 82 Margot and, you know, things like that, which people would, you know, sort of die to drink, you know, if you were in the wine. And uh, 
And then, then we'd, we'd, we'd go to the tasting and then people would, uh, you know, they'd put in ice cubes in there or drink it with Sprite. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's a very popular one. <laughs> Uh, and uh, it's just uh, make you your know, own spritzer out of Margot. <laughs> <laughs> so they uh, and it, the first few times, you know, a couple of times, it just sort of almost made me ill. And uh, and then it was like, no, it's his wine, you know, they can drink <laughs> how they want it, and I'll drink it my way. You know? and it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, you just have to learn to. Learn to yeah, I mean, they, Let it. And they, they used to have stories like in the newspaper about, you know, how um, this wine club, they, uh, like, you know, the 12-member wine club, and they were all told to bring their best bottles. And, I mean, and then they listed the 12 bottles they got. I mean, they were just, you know, super, really, you know, several thousand dollars each bottle. And then they all poured it into one large punch bowl. And, uh, and... <laughs> And so this was like the best of the best of the A blend. A blend of the best of the best. And uh, then they all drank that. And, uh, you know, when there was people asked me sometimes, is this kind of story real? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And they, but they enjoyed it. So why be a snob? They enjoyed it. Their bottle. So, but yeah. Have you been able to sell any wine in India? Uh, no. Uh, India, there's a couple of issues. There's, uh, the, there's a lot of tariffs on wine. It's a 130% tariff. And, uh, and there's other complexities to it. Uh, I mean, but right I, off I, the I'm bat, fine. that makes it like uh, yeah, crazy uh, expensive. Expensive. And, uh, and then storage is... Uh, uh, you know, very few places have good wine, uh, maintain temperature mm-hmm. control. Mm-hmm. And with something like Pinot... You, you need to be able to know that they're going to properly store it. Store it, it yeah. Sure. Um, destroys it. And so, yeah, they, uh, we, I've, I've tried. Uh, so my uh, family still uh, lives in India. My mother and uh, my brother, and one, one older brother. And uh, so I, I go to India a couple of times a year and yeah, so always want to uh, so it's not due to the lack of trying it's just uh, it's not just uh, the and <laughs> it's not worth it so let's talk about the space obviously uh, the, the tasting room you mentioned the, the, the reasoning behind it tell me about the design of it and, and what you're kind of going for here obviously it's it's a pretty amazingly well-known tasting room uh, for the size of your wineries so what was the what was the kind of what was the the design behind it, what did you have in your head uh, as, as you designed it? Well, when we started um, trying to decide what look of a tasting room we wanted, we visited a lot of tasting rooms in the area. Um, and then I started getting um, Oregon Home Magazine um, and um, d- um, a couple of others. And um, two-form architecture uh, out of Eugene uh, had a home that they had done that um, was along um, the Columbia River. And the, the home was set up in what he referred to as little pods, that each room had its own distinct character. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this building doesn't look anything like that home. <laughs> 
Um, but it is designed on that same premise that when you're in the main tasting room, that is one fully conceived space by itself. Mm -hmm. When you go into the Zen garden room, that is intended to be a completely a separate space. And um, we wanted, we had, the, the property had a, an old barn from the early 50s on it that was 100 foot deep and 50 foot wide. Uh, and it had, was full of um, wood from the, that had been pulled from the Tillamook burn, so it was old growth fir. Uh, and so the challenge that we presented him was reusing as much of the barn wood in the building as we could. Mm -hmm. uh, but we definitely wanted um, a, a space that was modern. Uh, so yes, there's concrete floors and there's even some concrete block walls. But we also wanted it to be very warm, and we accomplished that by bringing in all of the wood from the barn that we could. So all of the surface wood that you see uh, is from the barn. Yeah, initially we tried to convert the barn, which would have been more <laughs> northwestern. And uh, the wood. Yeah, but uh, it uh, uh, it just uh, you know it was farmer engineered. And this uh, structure, you see, that's the north wall of the barn that we left up. And those big uh, uh, concrete uh, blocks, mm -hmm. uh, you think that, you know, those are real strong, but they're just sitting on dirt. There's no footing underneath. <laughs> no footing underneath. So when we took down the barn, that started falling. It was like we thought that was holding up the barn, but the barn was actually holding up itself. <laughs> and, uh, the, the structural engineer, when he first came out, you know, he said, I wouldn't park anything inside that barn. <laughs> anything of any value wouldn't park there. And, and he, they said he was like, oh, I don't even need to do a calculation on this one. Okay, nope. <laughs> you know, so of course, a, a, you know, a barn that was farmer engineered um, was not going to meet uh, seismic codes. Uh, so essentially the uh, architect in looking at converting it um, was going to tear it down, um, build a steel structure, and then rebuild the barn around it. Mm -hmm. And uh, that just, it, it, well, it was the first time I'd ever heard the word practical said like a slur. <laughs> because when I said it doesn't make any sense, it would make more sense to take the wood. The building was built by a man. I want to pay homage to the wood, mm -hmm. to what earth has given us, to this old growth fur. I'm not interested in paying homage to a man who needed to build a barn. You know, and he was like, well, aren't you being practical? <laughs> It wasn't, I mean, the, you know, the... Oh, the ouch! Was, <laughs> like, uh, like, yeah, it was, uh, and it let wasn't that wood that shine. You know, it was, uh, yeah, I'm like, it it's not even older than my, it's younger yeah, than my dad. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, wasn't, it was a historic barn, you know. 1800s or somebody right, from right. a wagon train built. It was, it was built at the end of a season using um, wood that was left over mm -hmm. uh, at the end of a season. So we took all the wood uh, <laughs> from the barn and uh, actually that, uh, in that, that shed over there has a significant amount of it left. But all the wood used in the building is, uh, is from the barn. barn. So it's all repurposed. Uh, so the ceiling, these, uh, uh, the siding outside and, uh, and, and, uh, and the furniture inside. And on the inside there's a room that we call the jewel box. Uh, and it's wrapped in fur, and the design is based on a, a what's it called, a crib box? Yeah, but like a, it's a, a, a granary feeder. 
do mm -hmm. the for the cows in there with the green uh, so on the there. second floor of the barn there was this um, grain feeder and uh, it was just made by nailing a lot of um, two, two by fours on top of one another um, but in looking at, uh, there were so many different designs we had gone through and, and decided that, not that one, nah, not that one. And then when the interior designer said, well, why don't we base it on this um, crib box, mm -hmm. um, then it was perfect. Because the beautiful thing about this wood that you can see in that kind of presentation is that there are um, hundreds of rings per inch. Mm -hmm. That's how slowly those trees were actually growing. Yeah. I mean, um, so it, and so yeah. you can really see the beauty of the fur mm -hmm. around the the um, the jewel box. Mm -hmm. I mean you, the wood's gorgeous on the inside but most other places we have it with some sort of stain on it so mm -hmm. that grain pattern is hidden but mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. just a lightly sealed whitewashed like the barn was. So they, uh, yeah, the other thing we wanted to do was, you know, there are a few popular architects uh, who build uh, tasting rooms, wineries, mm -hmm. and essentially, you know, they, most of the stuff looks the same, and which is kind of natural because that's their signature style. And that architect's uh, so, signature and, style. Yeah, and uh, so we, we wanted, really wanted to use an architect new. who hadn't worked. Uh, in this area mm. and uh, so that was uh, which presented its own challenges <laughs> but, uh, but, it, uh, but it produced something that was yeah. at that time it was the first sort of a, you know a modern the tasting room and mm -hmm. now since then you know there have been several others but uh, it was new yeah. mm -hmm. the other thing we did was over the years you know we had come in contact with uh, Hoichi Kurisu who was the second director of the Portland Japanese Garden. Mm -hmm. And uh, so when we, get when we started building this building, we asked him uh, to uh, design the landscaping. Mm -hmm. And he usually does much, much larger uh, projects. Much larger projects. You know, or sort of like the Portland Japanese Garden <laughs> style, uh, uh, size type things, you know, acres and acres of the... So he said he was very busy. So Angela then wrote to him and said, okay, then we'll, we'll just wait, uh, you know. The, well, I, no I typed him an email and, and I'm like, I really want you to do this for me. I've done a lot of research and I just can't believe that you're um, in Portland and it would just be great if you could do this. And he sent back and he goes, I've got this, the, his British Virgin Island garden, which is like an island <laughs> that he did. And um, maintaining the Anderson Gardens in Chicago. And he was doing some stuff down at the, I think it's the Morikami garden Florida. in Florida. And I've got this new hospital garden I'm doing in California. I just really don't have time. So I just was like, okay, what am I gonna do? And I just replied and I said, Hoichi-san, there will be no garden until you have time. <laughs> Send. And he came back and he goes, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> so so he, uh, he came up with this thing about the water wrapped around the building mm -hmm. uh, and uh, which, uh, and, you know, it was a, sort of a challenge because uh, architects are very um, uh, protective of their design. And so this was new and it needed you know, changes mm -hmm, mm -hmm. stuff and uh, but uh, but we uh, so I mean, Angela had to play uh, peacemaker between them but eventually uh, it, uh, came to and then the, now the you know 
after the fact, uh, the architect is They're very, very, very happy. happy very happy. But you know, I mean, he he you know he was building a building, and he wanted to do the little the building planter boxes, and he kept doing these designs. I'm like, you don't need to do any of this, and I need you to, you know. Um, let us have water up against this foundation and I need this and he was like no you need to tell him to do this and, and I was like you know we're all going to work together because this is what Angela wants and Angela gets what she wants mm -hmm. you know so uh, uh, you know, so, it, it, but it, I, you can understand. I mean, uh, somebody says they're going to do a garden. What do most people do? Mm -hmm. And then when people say they do a Japanese garden, most people that meant that you planted a couple of Japanese maples and got some little concrete pagodas mm -hmm. to put on the ground. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so we, he really had no idea that our vision was this bold mm -hmm. uh, and this large, um, mm -hmm. you know, so he was definitely very happy once he saw that the garden came in. Because the, the, the land, when he was finished with the building, the land sloped down this hill on both sides. And so essentially the garden grew up to be around the building mm -hmm. and enveloped the building. Uh, so Richard could not have this vision that we would build the, these sizes of ponds mm -hmm. and this size of a of a wall in order to be it's, able it's to a, have it's it. It's a very uh, you know it's a, sort of the Japanese concept. So you can barely see the building from the road, mm -hmm. and that's purposeful. That uh, you know the the garden is meant to be viewed from the inside. Mm -hmm other than, you know, it's mm. not a curb appeal type right. deal. So as you come up, you slowly start seeing the, you know, the, the wall, the, the garden, and mm. then the building mm. sort of reveals itself. And yeah. then you come in, then you see the yeah. garden. That was, and that, and that, you're exactly right, that was, that was kind of the, the vision change, is that Western gardens are designed to present the house. It's like, look at what's behind me. And so you can always see the house from the street and the garden is presented to the person driving down the road. Mm -hmm. um, a Japanese garden is meant to be viewed from inside the house mm -hmm. because you're bringing nature into your interior space, into your inner world. Uh, and you use borrowed landscaping uh, to create the overall garden. So the height of the garden um, allows us to, we, we don't see Laughlin Road, we don't see any cars going down, but we do fully see the coastal range, we mm -hmm. see our neighbors' um, vineyards, so we have all the borrowed landscaping beyond our garden to enhance the overall view. Mm -hmm. And when you're in the building, you don't have any um, feeling that you're not within the garden. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, that, so the architect kept designing, look at me, <laughs> and Hoichi kept designing, no, look at me. <laughs> and somehow it all Ergo, worked. it all worked, though. <laughs> but all these uh, boulders, I mean, these are all, uh, I mean, it was a, a long process. They look like they're sort of randomly placed, mm -mm. but like each boulder, you know, like about a one hour, uh, to place. to place. I mean, he had this huge crane, and often it would pick it up, he'd have it turn around, and he'd go like, no, not no, that one. Bring another one. <laughs> and uh, he, I mean, he placed all these boulders. Yeah, Hoichi uh, did all of that himself. himself. And he, 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 he told me that he, he, when he's placing the boulders, that he talks to the rocks, that the rocks are old, and that a rock will say, I'm the one. And sometimes he has to disagree with the rock. 
<laughs> but he, he has this choreographed movements where the person who's running the crane understands that when he does this, how they, he wants it tilted. And so the whole rock wall on the side, there's no, um, there's no mortar, there's no concrete. Those rocks are all niched in. Uh, and that's just um, lots and lots of experience. And we've had other um, um, garden professionals uh, come over to the garden and just marvel at how all the rocks look like they're naturally mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. um, they don't look like the, what most people do in gardens, which is I got a big boulder, I got one, and I sat it there, and that's the way it looks. These were all very carefully uh, selected, first at the yard by Hoichi, and then where they're placed in the garden. Amazing. So, it, yeah, the, the whole I mean, the, the, the tasting room and uh, and this garden was was our aesthetic kind of thing. You know, this this is something that we uh, which we cared about, and uh, there's there's art inside the building that uh, again it's uh, it was stuff. Other than I think one uh, one piece in there, it was stuff either in our offices in Houston or in our home. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, in fact, the very first painting that we bought together. Uh, uh, is uh, on the it, wall in there. Is in the wall in there, and uh, so it. Yeah, it was. Uh, I think that's all what we wanted to drive to was you know what is our aesthetic and you know hope people How we like, like it. to live. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and it's the same way with the wines. These are wines we like. We to like, and uh, we, we love. drink. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of there's a theory that you know you shouldn't drink your own wines as much because you so you can see what. Well, your palate just goes a certain way, but we love drinking our wines, and uh, I think that's the uh, that's that's been the philosophy all the way along. Mm -hmm. How long did it take to pick out that first painting you bought together? It was. It was much more. It was significantly more than we, uh, you know, we had even thought of. So we went to this gallery. We, you know, we liked it. And, well, we liked, we had um, United Airlines, and at the time it was Continental Airlines, their lounge uh, had um, this artist, Robert Rector, in it. And um, we don't, we were both traveling a lot for business, but separately. And so one time he came home and he's like, I saw this painting next to here. And I'm like, oh, that's the one that's like this. And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, I like that one too. So the next time I was at the airport, I asked the people at the desk, do you know where the art came from? And amazingly, they did. And it turned out it was a gallery in Houston. <laughs> so we went and we told the guy, okay, we really like this, Chris, could you show it? And so he was pulling out this painting. We're like, oh, that's nice. He pulled out this one. We're like, this is really nice. He does beautiful work. And then he pulled out one and we both went, oh, <laughs> the sales guy smile from ear to ear <laughs> he had us then <laughs> so yeah that was pretty quick too them, uh, i guess that's the truth is that when we're really passionate several, i can't get passionate about salt well, and pepper shakers several paintings, you know, uh, we saw several paintings i mean when we saw this one we really liked it and then he he brought it home and we, so we could see it in the wall and stuff but yeah it was uh, uh it's, it's it's something we like uh, yeah these were all uh, so all the pieces in there were very personal. Mm -hmm. it's, yes, uh, uh, yes. It's not uh, stuff that uh, we had an interior decorator or somebody. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, no, and that was another one of the things with the with the architect that not only was I a little bit of a nag about the garden, but also about the art. Uh, because you have so much beautiful view here, of course, an architect wants to make everything walls of glass. And I kept saying, no, I need a wall for art. I need it to be this big and this big, and I need a wall for this piece, this big, this piece. You know, so some of the uh, design of where windows are and where there aren't uh, were driven by this is what wall I plan to put this art on. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, um, we have... Um, two pieces that were in the building that were purchased for the building. And the one is the LED work mm -hmm. by Leo Villarreal, who um, did the bridge in San Francisco. And he's now got several bridges of his bridge project in London um, that are on for the Illuminated River. Uh, we purchased that one with the intent that it would go here. It was um, in my office. Uh, in Houston for a little over a year while we were waiting on the building to be constructed. But that work is nine foot long. Mm -hmm. It's not, not the kind that you have in your home. <laughs> you, do need a, you do need a big space. <laughs> I, I had it in the entryway at my office uh, and you couldn't stand in the entryway very long before you started feeling like you were going to get flash bulb blindness. <laughs> that doesn't happen here because the room is, is so large. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the second work that we purchased was the, uh, the James Searles mm -hmm. work um, which hangs in the ceiling of the jewel box. Mm -hmm. uh, and that work was um, commissioned by us from James. Um, we had him and his uh, wife Charlene Locke come out because uh, I told him that uh, this space was very special and its view of the pond was so strong and of the vineyard that he was going to have to compete with it. And the only way he was going to understand is if he came to visit and saw. And when he walked into the space, he's like, okay, I really like you because you know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, but uh, he, he, the, the work is fabricated using wood from the barn. Mm -hmm. and, wow. he had, um, and he took some extra wood and he's made several other artworks uh, out of that wood as well. So tell me about the kind of overall what you want a what you want a visitor to Saffron Fields to, to sense. What is the overall aesthetic here? So it's it's a you know it's Zen or sort of peacefulness. You know, so people who uh, and this is from uh, talking to people who, you know who like to visit us. They like uh, you know you know the the wines are uh, what we'd call like elegant uh, wines. You come out here, you sit on the patio, you know, look at the koi, you look at the uh, uh, the coastal range, and it's just a feeling of uh, peacefulness, you know. This is a place you just come and you relax, have good wines, you know, and that's that's the the thing uh, we, we aim for. We have people who love to come to see the art as well. Yeah, and the art, uh, that's, uh, yeah, that's all feeds into the the, the general vibe of the place. Our uh, big thing over here we started is, uh, uh, is uh, a fireworks show. So that's some of the passion. So we, uh, one day I was standing in the tasting room and uh, uh, there was this guy, you know, who'd come in to taste and, and start talking to him and he's like, what do you do for a living? And he says, I, I put up you know, these city style fireworks shows. Like, could you do one for us? And he's like, yeah, I'm, we could do it. 
And so it's just on the other side of this pond, you know, on the other side of the lavender. And it's the closest you can ever be to uh, legally <laughs> to a fireworks. A, a fireworks show, sure. you know, that large. Uh, these are commercial fireworks. And so you can actually feel the concussion of the, uh, the, them going off. And that's become a really popular, popular. event. <laughs> it's become the fireworks show for Yamhill. <laughs> and uh, we'll actually, they'll practically shut down Laughlin Road and we do it on July 3rd, the, you know, the eve. So people have fourth, fourth you know, off. off. We yeah. want our employees to have the fourth off. Fourth with their off, family. and also people, you know, we're drinking a bunch of wine and stuff. You, know, you can take it easy the next day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, you have a holiday. Yeah. So, um, uh, but yeah, they. Uh, so we have almost the entire town of Yamil will be parked along the, on the road. road. <laughs> and then we have people and on the lawn and food trucks, and but it's a it is a an incredible show. Another one of the, but we've always loved fireworks. We, we love fireworks, and it's uh, every year, you know, now that guy tries to outdo, Try outdo himself. Did you know the coffee creamer um, will explode? And, uh, I didn't know that. So but he brings these giant uh, things, like stockpots of, uh, of coffee creamer, and he ignites it, and it puts out this sort of <laughs> cloud. It's like a mushroom cloud. And uh, people, I mean, so two, saw two, two years ago when he did it, he, he did, did, does it to start the show. And the, two years ago was the first time he did it this big. And when it went boof, everybody was like, oh my no, they thought that the fireworks show had blown up <laughs> <laughs> because it, it sounded like it and it looked like it. It was a big mushroom cloud. And then the fireworks started and everybody's like, ah. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> but I did not know that Kramer, yeah, coffee Kramer, would have a dust cloud explosion. Thing. Yeah, you'd think, that's safe. No, no, it blows up. <laughs> yeah, so that's, uh, yeah. So, but that's the, the vibe, uh, is just a piece. And uh, yeah, I mean, so we we've, we've have, uh, you know, a lot of people who've been members from day one. And, you know, again, let's uh, go along, yeah. You mentioned earlier that uh, you said that you do a lot of this, you do the sales off, off premise sales. Tell me about kind of as you as you're growing, as you're building the brand together, f figuring out each of your roles and, and, and what you're going to do going forward, and what you, and what you were going to find other people to do. I guess I suppose I guess. Yeah. So uh, I mean, we still uh, you know still maintain our engineering jobs, and uh, Angela has a much more involved listing uh, um, um, business. And mine, uh, so she, uh, you know, her focus on the things she loves is the, the garden, garden and art and, art. and drinking wine. That's my role. And then, uh, the garden is, uh, you know, it, it takes a lot of uh, maintenance. I mean, it's a, it's a significant effort. Um, um, we have a, you know, a dedicated person for it, and uh, and even then, he. During summer, he has to have help, and uh, it's just it's constantly something going on. We've, planned, we've got an orchard over there, bees, uh, which I handle. Angela doesn't, since she's allergic to, to bees. bees. <laughs> but, but not uh, to honey. But not to honey. Yeah. <laughs> so we harvest a lot of honey, and, and I uh, package and a lot then, of honey. <laughs> uh, the you know uh, the the tasting room, like the day to day, it's we have a staff. 
that that does that, uh, and uh, the uh, outside sales, uh, you know, I, I I do because again, it's it's not extensive. What we we sell about seventy percent over here, and uh, so but uh, uh, all the outside stuff. Uh, because there is, you know, it is a. For small wineries, it is uh, as with everybody. Is it's it's personal selling, you know. When you uh, you go, the restaurant people or where most of our wines are sold are, you know, those guys are pretty jaded and uh, they don't really want to talk to you. And it's another person with the winery, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it's uh, uh, so you show up, but at least they will see owners and uh, you know winemakers when they go out and because you can tell them the story and sort of you know maybe some of the passion goes uh, reaches out to them and, and then they so uh, that I think is essential in, in, in this uh, in, in this world otherwise the, the distributor won't do anything basically <laughs> so Sanji's the, the energy behind the wine production through sales yeah, yeah. and I cheerlead <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, uh, and, and, and as it is uh, now, you know, uh, it, and obviously when you work with an outside winemaker, uh, you, uh, it, there is a sort of a growing period and it took us a few years to where we were totally in sync with, with, with Tony and, and now, you know, we're being good friends, I mean, it, it, it just uh, is it's helpful, he knows almost instinctively what we would like, what we wouldn't like, and uh, you know, it can, it's easier. So what about as you look ahead for the future for yourselves and, and for Saffron Fields, what do you see happening here over the next next decade? What, what's, what's, what's gonna happen with the brand and the space? So the, so the brand will slowly, will grow a little slowly as, uh, as our uh, sales grow. But uh, essentially, we don't envision very many changes uh, in in that uh, in in the sort of the identity or even the the space. Of course, the space, you know, the garden will evolve as as needed. But uh, but it it uh, I don't I think the the foundation is 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 here, mm -hmm. and it's only like sort of fine tuning is the way we envision it. But I would hope for certain that we're going to be out here full time in 10 years. Yeah. And uh, so we, we have a home. You know, <laughs> when we first came out here, uh, we used we were to stay in a manufactured home. We stayed in a little cottage. So the, oh, when we first started coming, oh my God. sold us on the property was that there was it a had caretaker's a, cottage. It was a caretaker's cottage. And it was a very romantic kind of name. And, uh, very romantic. And so we thought the reality was, was cool. different. And it's a, like a cinder block building. 12 and foot by 12 foot concrete floors, tin roof with, must have had some bats or something in it. it was just yeah, and so we, uh, and it, would, it was, you know, a great place to store wine, but uh, I mean, it, it never got above 55. We, we stayed in there for like almost three years? Three, four, from years four, year, year, four years. Four years, four years. We had two floor heaters running in it, and the two Yorkies would lay like almost on the floor heater to stay warm. It was always cold. And you had to go outside. The bathroom was in the next 
was in mm -hmm. the next the building. building. And uh, I mean, then again, the same thing with no heat. like concrete, no heat. And I mean, you got out of the water and you had like 30 seconds <laughs> yeah, before you had, broke. You had things staged. <laughs> so when I turn the water off, how fast can I get to this towel and dry and off and, and throw my clothes on so I can go back to the other cold space? Yeah. I came I came back to work so many times that my uh, my admin told me she was not going to approve my next travel request if I came back sick again. So that's when we got the manufactured got home. Manufactured home that uh, you know, like we stayed in for ten years. And uh, we stayed in it for ten years, and then we got you know as manufactured homes go, they're not built for. Uh, Ever. <laughs> they built to last really rapidly. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so then uh, a couple of years ago we built a started home. building our home and yeah, we just yeah. got in it. Yeah, but two years ago we moved into it and uh, so it's yeah it's much more comfortable now. Much more comfortable. Well then and going from the going from the Cottage. The cottage, quote unquote cottage, the shack, uh, to the to the manufactured home. The big driver was heat. We had to have heat, but everybody kept telling us, "Oh, it's not. It's rarely hot in, in here, and if it is, it's only hot for a week, and then it's fine again." You know, the problem is, is if you're only coming out for one week a month, and the one week that you're here, the temperature is 95, and the trailer tracks about seven degrees higher than ambient. You're looking at it's nearly 100 degrees inside that building. And so the new house has AC and heat. <laughs> Both. <laughs> Both. <laughs> we went upscale. <laughs> we got climate control. We shouldn't have listened to people on the AC thing, no. Yeah. Like, you don't need AC. You don't need AC. You just open the windows. It's a warm years, you know, 14, 15, 16. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then, then that manufactured home used to be about like five, six degrees higher, hotter than outside. Yeah. So you could be outside and it would, would go be, outside it, and, and to cool off in, in the sun. <laughs> it just feels like. And plus uh, it was right over here on the other side of the, of the pond. And when we first put it there, uh, it was, you know, there wasn't. Nothing here. Yeah, right. So when then the there became like a privacy issue. You know, people walking around would like uh, look in there. Yeah, we couldn't be on the deck because people would see us and go, "Hey, how are you?" It's like, and then I'm people at home. Were like, oh, we saw the uh, the window, uh, the blinds open, so we knew you were home. We knew you were home. <laughs> It's like, huh? And the people who barely knew it. Not, <laughs> not like, not. <laughs> they were just like, people who came to. Yeah, it's like, get back, get back. I don't know you like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's all things they don't tell you about. It's like, really, we would say Oregonians were very friendly. <laughs> <laughs> Boundaries, maybe. Boundaries are nice, <laughs> yeah. but. But yeah, we didn't have trouble with anybody knocking on the door, so it wasn't too bad. Um, but it was, it was. We once we got this place open, it was like you know there was no going and laying in a swimsuit on the deck anymore. Sure. Sure. I was like, uh-uh. Sure. <laughs> in the public now. In the public now. <laughs> Well, uh, so I'm curious, uh, obviously we're talking to you in August 2020 in the middle of, of a pandemic here. Uh, I'm curious how uh, COVID has affected your business here, uh, maybe uh, affected kind of your view of the future of your business. 
It hasn't, I think, uh, I mean, um, we're still, you know, sort of seeing COVID as uh, something that will eventually come under control, uh, either with a vaccine or uh, whatever. We'll, we'll know uh, maybe some drugs to treat it better. So that is our uh, ultimate. Uh, obviously, um, it's been a learning process. Uh, uh, but uh, having this large outdoor space has been very helpful. So uh, business, uh, you know, the, uh, say June, July, it's, you know, July was actually a pretty decent month. You know, it matched last year. And uh, so we, are, we have a lot more people too because uh, the way we do things now. But uh, uh, so much, uh, yeah. we have a couple of extra staff members, you know, to, uh, for cleaning and things like that. But... I think so I, we had to transition from just having, you know, you show up tastings to um, uh, tastings by appointment. Um, you know, the the um, uh, we we're doing seated tastings. So when people come, the table is set up, and the, there's four glasses in front of them, and all we're doing is pouring the wine for them um, as a flight. Uh, you know, so we've got as, gotten it down to as contactless uh, as we can make it. And with the outdoor space, we're able to get and a lot of spacing then, between people. Yeah, I mean, and, and it had, you know, the customers had to feel comfortable. Our staff had to feel comfortable. That was a big struggle. That was was the, the, actually the, the staff uh, that which was not being something worried. we uh, had anticipated, you know, so focused on the customer side that uh, you know we want them to feel comfortable and then it was like no this you know, the it's staff, the staff has to has to is equally important you know and uh, and then uh, so we had to you know uh, so the first uh, month almost took uh, where we were uh, you know what did the staff think was uh, reasonable and uh, safe and uh, something that they were comfortable with and then of course match that with what the customer thought was comfortable and still be a good experience you know that, that's the important thing is that it's not just that we are not a wine bar that you know you're coming to drink you know, you're coming to have a good experience you know so we need the staff to feel comfortable that they know how far to stand away from a table so they can tell somebody about a particular bottle or or answer their questions about the vineyard uh, and yeah. so it took about a month of staging that in, but now uh, they're very comfortable. And um, we had talked about doing um, a lot more seated tastings for years, but it's one of those that, well, this is working for us as it is. Uh, and so this forced us essentially to uh, have to explore that as a, as yeah. a business model. And uh, it, we've, we've found it to be successful. Of course, we're missing those tourists during the week. We look forward to seeing people coming back to that, visit Oregon so in the a summer. Local, most, I mean, there are a few tourists, but very very limited. limited. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it was uh, so we we've adapted. Uh, you know, uh, the fireworks this year we had very few people. Uh, so we actually painted like little squares on the lawn, and that was your square. You stayed in it. <laughs> and, uh, and you left your square. Make sure you have on your mask. mask. And uh, so that was, and so yeah, it, uh, it's, it's, been, it's been good. What about with, uh, re with restaurant sales? Obviously that's a, a big part of your business. Yeah, it's, uh, that is uh, gone, yeah. <laughs> that's, 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 yeah, gone, yeah. yeah that, have to uh, rebuild that. Really to rebuild that, yeah. And, uh, and it's the restaurants, you know, they're essentially, they're most uh, of them are sort of liquidating their uh, 
uh, sellers, you know, and uh, because it's just something uh, they become like almost like wine shops, and uh, a lot of them, uh, which who, who had decent wine sellers, mm -hmm. and uh, so it's uh, yeah that I think uh, is going to be a major challenge. Mm -hmm. Hopefully there'll be a buying spree once everybody yeah, it, opens it, it back will, up. Yeah, it will change. I mean, everybody <laughs> wants to open it, just... Uh, just uh, trying to do it safely. Doing it safely, and the, the, the numbers have to, you know, to indicate that it can be done safely, you know. So it's, uh, you know, it's... I think it's, yeah, there's no... Uh, it's, people have a hard time going slowly. It's either it's zero or it's you know completely all, open. Uh, completely open. But in Texas, I think um, people have finally accepted because we had it where um, it was a, we it was shut down, and then it went to well we're reopen, mm -hmm. and um, people hit the bars, people hit the clubs, and then we had this big burst, uh, and and so they came back and said okay. Um, you know, everybody um, shut back down, and then it was reopened with the mask. And when we reopened with the mask, the numbers didn't jump. Uh, and, and so what went from a lot of denial of, I am going to have to change my life, no way, I'm not going to change. Um, I, think, I think at least in Houston, um, people have finally accepted that, you know, we can reopen and reopen safely if everyone's willing to wear a mask. Mask, maintain your distance. Maintain your distance and wash your hands, for goodness sakes. All my friends, we laugh about that. We're like, they keep telling us to wash our hands. Didn't we learn how to do that at like three? <laughs> Just like, <laughs> don't put your hands in that French fry bag until you've washed them, okay? <laughs> so tell me what the, what the biggest changes you've seen to Oregon's industry are since you've been a part of it. What it, what it looks like now versus what it looks like when, what it looked like when you started. I would say for me it's the, the growth of the AVAs. When we first came it was just the Willamette Valley and it was Oregon. And the birth of the AVAs really gave each area, you know, its own identity. And the Yamhill Carlton AVA has been one of the most active in doing group events. And that's again about the, the community coming together and supporting each other. Um, you know, so going out and, um, you know, essentially setting up these events and having all of us be able to come and pour at them uh, has um, really been, a, I think, a, a, I hate using that term game changer because it's not at that level, but it, it has really opened up avenues for access uh, to distributors, to wine shops, to restaurants um, that we would not have had had it not been for the support of the AVA. And also just a number, you know. Uh, uh, so when we, when we, when, even when we opened this tasting room, you know, there was Willa Kenzie. So Willa Kenzie has been here from like '92 or you know, so roughly, uh, and they opened their tasting room a couple of years. So there was this sort of lonely outpost out here, <laughs> you know. And and then then we came. We were second, you know. There was again nobody else here, and uh, who had a tasting room? There were vineyards, of course. And then, uh, so that uh, really, uh, and now uh, uh, we have Montenor uh, across, uh, who's building three tasting, tasting rooms, rooms over there. 
Uh, of course, Chris Berg opened one, Fair Sing, and then Beacon Hill. I mean, uh, there's like there's going to be double-digit tasting rooms in, on this road, you know, this stretch of road, uh, Laughlin Road. Yeah, so, so the, the, the growth and the number uh, of, the, and, of uh, wineries. Over the hill, we have uh, Grand Moraine and Selena. And so it's, uh, it's just a tremendous number of uh, tasting rooms that have opened. And uh, so in, it's, yeah, I think that uh, that is uh, it's sort of good in that it drives uh, in the tourism also, you know, when we first opened, you know, most of the people uh, who came to visit were people who were in Portland for some business. They were local, if they were tourists, they were in Portland for business and they took a day off mm -hmm. for wine. And it was only in the last four, four years, four or five years that uh, you started seeing people who were coming here dedicated uh, they they just they came for wine industry they just came for the wine industry yeah it wasn't they might just take a day to the coast yeah. but they were going to be yeah. here four or five days just tasting mm -hmm. and i think that's, that's a big the, change too big, uh, yeah that i think that that is the the big uh, big driver i think uh, uh, that, that's a that's a major change mm -hmm. in the landscape you know, we still need a few more hotels and stuff, but, uh, but that... <laughs> need uh, more places for people to stay locally. Locally, but, uh, but in that, uh, but yeah, the, the wine, the growth has been phenomenal, actually. Let them stay local, they'll spin local. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about as you look ahead for the industry? What is, what is Oregon wine going to look like over the next 10 years? Oh, what I see changing is that we're seeing more um, large producers um, moving into Oregon and so I think you'll see um, a lot more national focus on Oregon. When we first bought the property and, and started the label you'd go to restaurants and it'd be you know California and there might be this of Oregon mm -hmm. you know and now you're seeing Oregon uh, stacking up against um, the California wines and yeah. I think you'll see a lot more of that as we get um, higher production wineries with bigger marketing budgets who will be pushing those wine lists and I think that's going to be very positive for everybody in Oregon because if somebody's looking in the Oregon column, any of us have a shot. Mm -hmm. When no one was looking at, when there was no Oregon column, none of us had a shot. Mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think uh, that's the the you know the, the outside attention is. Uh, it, I mean, there is some you know it's, it's some issues with you know some people don't like it that it might ruin the Oregon <laughs> wine culture, but I think the wine culture is what we make of it and uh, and there is I mean the there's going to be a balance of smaller family-owned wineries and uh, the the corporate wineries uh, so to speak and uh, they you know there's I think they are needed because they they, they bring uh, resources that uh, you know, winery like mm. us or right. uh, others like us could never right. uh, ever have. and that resources thing is um one of the issues, like with the Yamhill Carlton AVA and the and the group events, none of us individually could afford to pull those events together and get all those people there. Um, but by pooling our resources and working together, uh, we're able to do that. Right, last question for you. 
obviously you are you're you're married. You have a, you have a life together. You have a business together. Tell me about the the, the secret to like a lasting lasting relationship while you own a winery and it together. How do you make it work? I think the most important thing for a longevity of a marriage is to learn when it's best to keep your mouth shut. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> and you divide your responsibilities. You know, there's some things that uh, right. that we like. You know, I mean, it's like you know, Angela doesn't would not doesn't enjoy doing those uh, sales calls and stuff. And I don't like doesn't. pouring at the tables. No. Yeah, so I mean, that's something I I like actually, and uh, you know, we uh, so I, I do those. You know, so we do things that each of us uh, like. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, that keeps you know, he doesn't like weeding gardens and I do so <laughs> I weed the garden so yes it's division of responsibilities so that we're not um, arguing over how to do something yeah. yeah but also knowing when to just say you know I don't have I don't really have to have an opinion about everything yeah. sometimes I can keep my mouth shut <laughs> <laughs> that's very important <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> That's all the questions that I have for the both of you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't I cover? Good. No, yeah. I think we're good. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you so much for yeah. sharing your stories, for reaching out to us and, and, and offering. I really appreciate that. And for showing us your beautiful space here. And uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank all right. You. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews. <laughs>